What's going on, guys? We're back today with another episode of Real Talk University, the podcast. Today we have Scott Tyndall, an entrepreneur and a former Shark Tank survivor, and we are very excited to uh, get to know him and his life story, all about what he did to get on Shark Tank, how he's been successful with his two companies, uh, Ty Try and Think Bigger, and how he decided to get into the entrepreneur lifestyle. So we're very excited to get his two cents on all of this, and I'm going to pass it off to Andre to explain um, how we kind of met him on a really short-term notice. Thanks, Christian. Yeah, so yesterday uh, we actually just sent Scott a DM on our Real Talk University Twitter account, uh, and Scott was nice enough to follow up right away and make some time on his calendar uh, in a very short notice. So really thankful for Scott. Uh, we're excited to get into this interview and kind of go over the process he took to get on the Shark Tank, what happens behind the scenes, uh, how he experienced failure with both his companies, and uh, kind of where it led him to, you know, where he is today at University of Mobile. And we'll, we'll get a lot into that in the interview. Um, and, you know, Scott's really excited to share some real advice to our younger college audience. So uh, we're excited for you guys to hear this. Uh, let's get into it. Hey, Scott, hope you're doing well this morning. Um, for our listeners that don't know you, could you just give us a short background of who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is uh, Scott Tindall. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm based in Mobile, Alabama, but I do work all over the country and I've done work all over the world. And, uh, you know, we are out here trying to use effort-based philosophies to solve this people's problems. So it's all about the hustle for us. So before we start here, could you just tell us why did you want to come on our podcast today and share your story? Uh, honestly, guys, I'm just um, always willing to help people any chance I get. And if somebody gets a little bit of nugget out of this conversation that helps them along their path, then that's worth my time and trouble. So uh, if you want, could you just tell us a little bit about your education and background? Uh, just kind of like where you went to school and then kind of what you wanted to pursue in school and how it's different now. Absolutely. So I have a very diverse and uh, a lot of people think uh, bizarre background, but it all started down here in Mobile, Alabama. I went to public school here and uh, from K through 12, all through public schooling, and then um, went to Auburn University and got my undergrad in secondary education. Thought I was going to be a teacher and a coach uh, because those were the mentors in my life when I was in school or my coaches. And, um, you know, I always thought that uh, sports would be a big part of what I do. Um, actually thought I was going to play for the Atlanta Braves until I was about 16 and realized I couldn't hit a breaking ball and realized that that wasn't going to work out for me. So being a coach was the next best thing. And I uh, had a wonderful time at Auburn and, and loved what I was doing um, and started teaching and realized that that really wasn't the world for me. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so I had a friend in law school at the time and he said, you should consider law school. I think you'd really like it. And so I didn't know any lawyers, um, just kind of grew up you know, lower middle class, just kind of hustling our way through. And so I thought, man, I law, being an attorney sounds like something prestigious. I, prestigious. I think I'll give that a shot. So went to the University of Alabama for law school and studied there for three years, got a JD, uh, started practicing law. And same kind of thing, thought that's what I wanted to do. And that just wasn't the right fit for me. The practice of law is very retrospective, meaning like 
it's all about what judges have already decided. And for me, my brain is always forward thinking. I'm, I'm innovative. I'm trying to think of the next best way to do something. And um, unless you're practicing in front of the Supreme Court, that's just not really what the practice of law is all about. So I did that for a couple of years and realized that really wasn't the world for me either. So then I had an opportunity to get into kind of the startup culture. I had a friend who was starting a business. He asked me if I could help him. And I said, I don't know. What do you have in mind? He said, I got to figure out how to legally move men and weapons around the world to protect against Somali-based piracy. And I said, okay, well, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, neither does anyone else. We got to create it. So that was my first foray into the startup world. Uh, went and worked for him at a company called Meridian Global. And we got licensed in 16 different ports around the world to move men and weapons to protect uh, U.S. and foreign flag ships against Somali-based pirates. And that was a wonderful experience. I was young. I was in my mid-20s. And I was really just figuring it all out. We were working all day with our domestic clients and with the State Department, we were working all night with our, our foreign partners and the foreign governments to make sure that we were all papered up. And uh, did that for a couple of years and just could not keep the grind up. I just had a uh, baby, my first daughter, and uh, my wife says, that phone rings at 3 o'clock one more time, and you have to wake you know wake up in the middle of the night to answer that, and you wake up the baby, we're going to have other problems. <laughs> so uh, at the time, I had been working on a couple startups on my own, and um, – I'm always working on probably 15 or 20 different business ideas, and you just never know when they're going to spin out or when they're ripe or when they're ready. You know, A lot of it depends on the market. A lot of it depends on uh, kind of the world that exists at the time. So I had one that I thought was ready, and uh, it was called Tie Tribe. It was like Netflix for neckties, and uh, it was really the first part, uh, first menswear in the sharing economy. You got to remember, we're very familiar with the sharing economy now. Everybody, Ubers, Lyfts, Airbnb. None of those things existed in 2012 when we started our company. So we had to get very aggressive and get very intentional on educating our customers as to what this was and why you should share a product. Now, thankfully, Rent the Runway had come out a little before us, so there was a model there that we could use, uh, and those those women were doing a great job with that. So uh, from there, we launched TyTry in December of 2011, and uh, – just sprinted and worked as hard as we could for about six months. And um, we did something we called fishing where we would take blog articles and send them to bloggers and then they would write them. We'd package them together and send them to a local writer and say, man, you're like the greatest business writer we've ever seen. I can't believe you haven't written about this company yet. We didn't tell them it was us, obviously. Uh, and then we'd package those up and send them to a larger paper and large, you know, just kept growing through that capacity and got really fortunate and got on the Today Show and Fox Business and NPR and some of those other places that, then led us into uh, applying for Shark Tank, and there was about 77,000 applicants that year, and we got uh, we were fortunate. We were lucky, and we were chosen to be a part of that. So we go out in June of 2012 and shoot our episode, and just had an amazing experience. And through that, uh, show airs in November. We blow up. We don't get a deal on the show, but Kevin O'Leary offers us 50% of what we're asking for, and uh, we just couldn't close out a second shark, but you know, the company was not very old at the time when, when we had shot that episode. So, you know, there were a lot of questions that we couldn't answer that were just really speculative on our part. Uh, Cuban wanted to know why we didn't know what our exact cost per customer was going to be going forward. Just, we just don't have the data on it yet. Yeah. Um, and so through that, just kind of ended up in the startup world and, and have been doing startups, been doing consulting. I've run a state fair along the way. I've, uh, now we're in the business of sports and 
helping the University of Mobile transform their athletic department into a business unit, 17 varsity sports, 380 student athletes, and taking these effort-based philosophies and applying them in different capacities. Definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, I think one of the key things you said there is always, you know, generating new ideas, always having things ready to go uh, when the time is right, because timing, obviously, in entrepreneurship in the startup world is huge. Uh, so, uh, and then we just want to get into more about your experience on Shark Tank. So uh, you briefly mentioned that. So uh, for viewers on the other side of where you guys were, kind of what goes on behind the scenes? Uh, if there's some things you can share, I'm sure uh, a lot of the things you aren't able to share. Uh, but if like what happens behind the scenes, if you want to just share a little bit about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, there's some things that we're NDA'd uh, out of saying. But you know, what I like to tell people is, People think it's just this eight minutes you see on TV, um, but in reality, you're out there about a week. So they fly you to L.A., and they don't give you much notice. They gave us about nine or ten days' notice that we were going to be flying out there. So you fly out to L.A., you go to the hotel. You're not allowed to talk to any of the other entrepreneurs. They don't want you you know, talking about your businesses and doing those things. So really, it was just me and my business partner, David, hanging out. We'd go over to the studio, meet with the producers, do those things, and then you're sitting around for a couple of days wondering when it's going to be your time to go over to the studio to actually shoot your episode. Well, once you get there, you then sit around even longer. So we were on site at probably 7 a.m. the day of our shoot, and I don't think we shot until 5.30 or 6 that night. And it was really just the two of us sitting in a room you know, waiting to get called. So if you think about that and then you see when people walk out on stage – they may have this massive anxiety because they've been in L.A. for four days not knowing when they're going to shoot. It's a lot different than this kind of controlled environment. Um, and then they literally take you from the green room, walk you straight to the set, mic you up. You go right out there, you know, and go do your pitch. Um, what they also you can't really see from the show is, you know, most people are in there between 45 minutes and 90 minutes. And then it gets edited down to what you see on on the screen. So I tell people there is a lot we said that could have made us look smart, and there's a lot we said that could have made us look foolish. It's all about the edit, all about the cut. Now, I feel like we got a good edit. It was very fair and representative of the way the conversation actually happened, so I have no complaints about that at all. Um, but you know, you walk out there and, and you stop on your mark as you, you know, come down the hall, and then you have to actually stand there for 60 seconds. And you don't even start your pitch until the producers let you start your pitch. But for 60 seconds, you're just standing there looking at the Sharks, and they're looking at you. And I feel like a lot of kind of the way the conversation is going to go is based on how that 60 seconds looks. If you can stare them in the eyes and smile at them and, and be kind and warm and but also be uh, serious, then I think you got a pretty good start. If you look terrified, and sometimes you can see on the show when somebody kind of looks terrified, then you're going to have a rough go of it. Um, the other thing that you know most people don't understand is like just because you shoot your episode doesn't mean it's ever going to air on TV. So there are plenty of people that will shoot an episode and it never airs. Um, and, and similarly, there's a lot of people that get deals on the show and the deals fall apart and they don't actually close the deal because you know we can say whatever we want when we're up there and the sharks are just taking that at face value. But then their accountants and their team comes back on the back end and does their due diligence. And determines where you actually telling the truth about the size of your business, scope of your business, all your costs, your margins, any POs you say that you have. Um, so just because they get a deal on the show doesn't mean that they're going to close that deal in real life. 
Yeah, for sure. So one thing I was very curious about is, like, what did you learn from being on Shark Tank? Like, once you left the studio, left L.A., what did you take away from that? Oh, man, my biggest takeaway is you're never going to have all the information. You've just got to make the best decision you can with the information you have. And then second of all, can you learn from your opportunity? So experience is one thing, but evaluated experience is totally different. Did you learn from that experience? And um, the thing is, you know, I don't know that getting a deal on that show would have been the best thing for us. I don't know. Maybe it would have, but I'm not, you know, laying down and crying about it. You just get up and go on and move. And, you know, through the show, we were able to gain thousands of more subscribers and then exit and sell our company to a group out of Manhattan that spring. So um, I think Shark Tank, just like life, is worrying about the things you can control not worrying about things you cannot control because that's just a waste of energy and then learning from mistakes. We said the best way to learn is by screwing up. And man, I've done a lot of learning in my life, but that's important. I learned far more from things that didn't go like I wanted them to than things that went perfect. You know, uh, there's something called resulting in psychology and Annie Duke just wrote a, a book called thinking in bets. And she talks a lot about resulting and what resulting is, is where we take the result of our decision and then determine whether or not that was a good or bad decision. Okay. Well, that's not real life. And here's a good example. There are plenty of people that go to a bar, get drunk, drive home, made it home safely. The result was they made it home safe. But that doesn't mean they were making good decisions along the way, even though they got a good result. Similarly, there are plenty of people that follow the rules of the road that drive the appropriate speed limit, that do everything right, that may die in an auto accident, right? It's still the right thing to make the best decisions you can. It's about putting yourself in the best position possible to have a good result, not taking the result and determining whether those were good decisions. Um, and so in her book, she talks about if you ask someone what's the best decision they've made in the past year, almost always they give you the best result of the past year, but not necessarily the best decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I get what you're saying, whether like the decision's right or not, the outcome's always going to be um, not always indicative of the uh, decision you made, but we just want to go into some of like the major uh, failures or setbacks you've experienced, like whether it's in business or in life or in school, and just uh, tell us how you were able to overcome them. I'll give you a good example right now of something that we're going through. So I own a duck boat business down here in Mobile. It's called Gulf Coast Ducks, and we've ridden thousands of riders um, every year for the past three years. And uh, we have a five-star review on Facebook, over 1,500 five-star reviews. And um, basically, uh, our business has evaporated and been taken away from us because it was that accident in Branson, Missouri over the summer, right back in July. Well, that has now caused the insurance rates to go sky high through the roof. And we're going to have to close that division of our company because we just can't afford to cover the insurance to stay open. So that goes back to a lesson, right? You can do everything right, and you can have all the five-star reviews you want, and you can have thousands of happy guests and wonderful teammates, and sometimes it just doesn't work out, and it's completely outside of your control. And so then the question is, do you have the grit and the perseverance to go out and keep fighting? So for us, we're going to go out and keep fighting. Now, we transfer people to other divisions in our company, and we use our automotive maintenance shop to grow and take over some of those 
uh, issues, but you know, it's really about, are you going to lay down and quit? Or are you going to keep fighting? Cause that's what entrepreneurship is about. It is about just fighting every day. It, entrepreneurship is a roller coaster. Uh, you have really high highs and really low lows. And it's about having the emotional intelligence to try and, uh, find your way through that path. Um, so really the, if you sum up all the lessons, it's like, just don't quit pivot. It's okay to pivot. It's okay to say something's not working. Let's make new decisions. Here's something else. I think people really could learn from is like, it's okay to change your mind. If you've made a decision and now there's new information that comes in and you've learned something more about what's going on, it's okay to change your mind. Changing your mind doesn't mean that that you were wrong. You made the best decision you could. Now there's more information and now we're making the best decision we can right now. And we may change our mind again in 15 days. We may change our mind in 15 minutes. It just depends on the information we have at hand, but we can't get so stuck in thinking this is the only way or this is the only way we can do it. Uh, we also can't say that's the way we've always done it. Right? So if we're trying to create new things and build new things, that's what entrepreneurship is about. Um, it is about doing new things. So we say, Creativity is thinking new things, but innovation is doing new things. So it's not enough just to think about it. Everybody's got good ideas. The, the gain happens in the execution, right? When you actually go and do this thing that you say you're going to go do um, and just not have this paralysis that I don't have all the answers, so I can't get started. You're never going to have all the answers. You're never going to have all the information. You're just trying to do the very best you can with what you got. Exactly. Yeah. Especially now with today's age, like technology, <clears throat> there's just so much things changing every day. There's always something different. Uh, you know, technology is just changing so rapidly. So, I mean, even some of the big, you know, the major companies that you see today, they might not even be around in 10 years uh, if they don't have the, the ability to pivot. Uh, so, I mean, that's just definitely great to keep in mind. And also action. Um, if you're going to, if you have an idea, um, you might as well just go out and try it. I know Christian and I here with this podcast, as soon as we thought of the idea, we, we said to ourselves, let's just go out and record it rather than trying to come up with the best plan and the best way to execute it. We just went out, we recorded it. We kind of felt we, we found a way to, you know, do it as best as we could. And we just learned along the way. I think that's just the best route to take rather than just sitting on the idea and then feeling the regret a few years down the road where you said, Hey, I had that idea. I wish I did it. Um, so we're gonna go into more on Tytry. Um, we're just we're just kind of interested in how you went about being acquired, uh, and kind of the steps you took to you know achieve that. Yeah, it's funny actually. Uh, the group that bought us out was um, one of the partners in that group was one of our original subscribers. Um, so we got a kind of different exit than a lot of people because we you know. They had been with us since the beginning, one of the early subscribers, and watched us grow. So they were aware of us already. Um, we, after we were on Shark Tank, we were approached by a number of people who would, you know, send us emails, say, "Hey, you still interested in taking on investors? Are you still interested in selling the company?" And we had a lot of those phone calls, and just nothing really felt right. Uh, you know, when you have a company that's like your baby, you're raising your baby, and you want to make sure that somebody's going to, you know, take care of that that company. Um, but we also knew that you know, an exit was what we were aiming for. A lot of what we do as entrepreneurs is we, we build things with the exit in mind. Um, I like to tell people that the difference in a small business owner and an entrepreneur is a small business owner thinks he's going to run that company forever. And an entrepreneur has a number in mind on what he'd sell that business for tomorrow. 
And so all of our businesses that, that I run, I've, there's a number in mind on if somebody wanted to buy it, they can come, you know, write a check in and it can be theirs. Um, and that's not always true with small business owners. And, and by the way, one is not better or worse than the other. Uh, there's no value judgment on which one is better. Um, but I will tell you, entrepreneurship is incredibly hard. It's, it is incredibly hard to know that every decision you make affects your staff. We have 47 employees here throughout our businesses, and every decision I make impacts their lives, impacts you know their significant others. So a lot of them have children. It impacts them. And um, so you have to really take your decisions with great care and caution um, and not just, you know, fly around making, you know, half thought through decisions like you can in the very beginning when nobody's not relying on anybody but yourself and you don't have other people to take care of. Um, so the acquisition process for us, back to your question, was a lot different than it probably is for most. And, um, you know, the Internet is as amazing wonderful thing that can link people together just like it's doing us for this podcast and so i think you know if somebody else is out there trying to build something just put it out there let people know that it's for sale if you if you want to build it to sale say hey look here's what we got we're accepting uh inquiries and offers on you know how to get bought out and in reality 99.9 percent of us are never going to get bought out by a hedge fund or some giant equity firm you know and that's okay um Maybe somebody will, but it doesn't change the value of the business you're building. There are pr- plenty of privately held businesses that are incredibly profitable, that are wildly valuable, and that's an okay model to go to. I mean, very few of us are going to Zuckerberg this thing and have an IPO where we, you know, become one of the five richest humans ever lived. Um, that is not enough. That's not a realistic standard to set for yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a vision or a giant goal of that. People ask, what is the goal of what we're trying to do within our companies? And the answer is very simple for me. My goal is to make a billion dollars with a B so that I can give it all away because I don't need what a billion dollars can buy. I do need what a billion dollars can do. If you go look at the work that Tillman Fertitta can go do out in Houston, you work, look at the type of work that Marcus Lemonis can go do, some of these other guys, it's because they have that have accumulated that wealth. And there's nothing shameful about saying you want to accumulate wealth if the purpose is to go help other people with it. I think if you say you want a billion dollars because you want to have an island and a yacht and a Lambo and all these other things, I mean, that's fine. But that seems like a selfish way to live life. And it also seems like a very hollow way to live life. Uh, But that's for other people to decide. For me, it is if I can make a billion dollars, what can I do to change my community and our culture? And if I don't make a billion dollars and I only make a hundred million dollars, that's okay. There's not as wonderful. That's a wonderful career. And we can go take that hundred million dollars to go change our community and the things around us that matter to us. So as an entrepreneur, you know, you've got to use your assets to help other people. Sometimes that's money. And sometimes that's whatever your physical assets are. So like, I'm telling you about the duck boats. We have these ducks. They're amphibious. They go half on land, half in the water. We were able to take them to Houston uh, last year and help in Hurricane Harvey relief, and we were able to move dialysis patients from their homes to their treatments in areas that no one else could go through because half the city was dry, half the city was underwater. So there were islands of uh, city that were surrounded and couldn't get out, and we were able to help those people. But that's because we had the assets within the company. So it's really about having this giant – 
vision of why you're trying to build it, what you want to do with it, and then how you can go help other people along the way. And if you try and put other people first and then you put your employees ahead of yourself, then you've got a much better chance of creating long-term success rather than just, you know, make a quick buck and move on with life. I mean, if you burn people, it'll come back around. This is a small world, man. So you can get a reputation for that pretty fast. Definitely. I think, you know, with social media and just modern entrepreneurship, uh, it's almost like entrepreneur has like formed into a buzzword where people, when they think of entrepreneurship, it's, you know, like that lifestyle that you mentioned with the, the islands and the yachts. And it's just it, totally opposite of what it really is, at least for most people. So, uh, Kind of going back to what you were talking about in the beginning of the episode about effort-based techniques. Uh, so how do you implement these fundamentals? And um, I know these are used by, like, Disney Park and Resorts. So how does this kind of apply to what you're currently working on? So uh, a lot of what we do is um, through the concepts that were created through the Disney Institute. I had a chance to go down and study at the Disney Institute and uh, study the work of Lee Cockrell, who helped invent that and create the Disney University. And so – what we say is if, it, if it's effort-based, we can do it. If it's budget-based, you evaluate the budget and you do the best you can. Not everybody's got Disney's budget. Certainly we don't. But the effort-based strategies that we use start with the people we hire. So we say select for attitude and train for aptitude. And what that means is I have to go find the right people with the right attitude, and then I can teach them how to do the things that I need them to do. But I can't make them a nice person. I can train someone how to work in our restaurant. I can train someone how to be a mechanic. I can train someone, you know, how to uh, do a lot of the jobs that we have, but I can't make them a nice person. And so that is entirely effort-based. Controlling your attitude is all about effort. Smiling and being, you know, infectious with your hospitality, that's all about effort. Um, We also say slow to hire, quick to fire. So what that means is, we're going to take a long time before we add somebody to the team. And however, if they tricked us and they're not the person we thought they were, we have to get them off the team in a hurry. That doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means they're not a good fit for the team. And so that's okay to say, Hey, listen, you know, you're a really nice person. It's just not going to work out here, but let us help you find somewhere else where you're going to be happy. Cause if somebody's unhappy on your team, then that's going to cause a lot of grief amongst everyone else. So, you know, that's another effort-based strategy where you, you just – you got to be tough on the situation and not tough on people but tough on the situation because you have to protect your other teammates. And you can't let one teammate destroy the culture from within, um, but you have to be very kind about it in the process and, and try and help them find a place that's a good fit for them. Uh, and most of the time if somebody's unhappy on your team, uh, they know they're unhappy. They're probably either looking for another job or know they need to be looking for another job anyway. So that's okay to have that conversation with them. Um, but then it's all about training and processes. So training and creating processes is all about effort, right? It is about taking the time, energy, and effort to write down your processes so that you can go from start to finish and then train the people within your team to know their jobs and to know other people's jobs too. They need to know how they fit within the whole scope of the organization and how each of the jobs work together. Um, those are all things that are based on effort and not on budget, right? Did you try real hard? Are you smiling? Are you a happy person? Did we hire the right people? Uh, Lee Cockrell, who I mentioned before, 
Um, he's got a couple of great books out there that folks should read, Creating Magic and Customer Rules and um, Time Management Magic. But what he says is it's not your job to motivate people. It's your job to hire motivated people. And when you pivot that, uh, it changes the way you think about your hiring practices. Similarly, you know, we're all familiar with the golden rule of treating other people as the way you, you want to be treated. And that's fine. And that's it's a good philosophy for life. But in the guest service world, we say treat other people the way they want to be treated. Because when you put yourself in their shoes and you have empathy for them, no one wants to be treated bad. Right. But if you're in a bad mood, you can say, oh, treat other people the way I want to be treated. Well, I'm in a bad mood. I don't care if somebody's mean to me. I'm going to be mean to them today. That doesn't work in, in our effort based strategies. So we pivot that and say, treat them the way they want to be treated. Put yourself in the position of the guest and say, how do they want to be treated? Uh, those are a few of our effort-based uh, strategies that, like I said, do not require a large budget to, to do those things. That's just trying real hard to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people think about entrepreneurship, <clears throat> most of the time they just focus on themselves. So that was great that you gave us a little perspective on the employee and the hiring aspect of it. So we just want to switch gears here. Um as I was researching you and I watched a YouTube video of your previous interview, you talked about how a billionaire, I don't remember the name, but they told you to think bigger. So I know that that inspired the name of your new company. Uh, could you just talk about how he influenced you and how your new company is doing so far? Kind of a dual-sided question here. Yeah, so the whole concept of thinking bigger, um, you know, kind of in that interview, I talked about the, the two times that I know that I've spent time with billionaires, they both told me the same advice. Uh, Mark Cuban told me I, when I was on the show, it didn't make the edit, but he told me I need to think bigger. And the point there was uh, he basically asked, like, what are you going to do when we turn this thing into a $20 million company? And he could kind of see in our eyes that we were thinking, like, man, $20 million, we probably made it. And his answer was, I'm not interested in building a $20 million company. I want to build a $200 million company. I want to build a $2 billion company. You have to think bigger. So then I have a similar conversation with a guy named Jim Pattison, Jr. He's the president of Ripley's Attractions. They have, last count, they had like 95 attractions in 11 countries. And he's in this hospitality and tourism world like we are. And um, he told me the same thing. He said, Scott, what are you trying to do? I think you're doing a wonderful job. I said, well, we're trying to transform tourism down here in our city. He said, that's great. That's because you're from here, right? I said, yeah. It's like, we've got to think bigger. I said, well, honestly, we have this vision that tourism can transform from New Orleans all the way through Destin, Florida, and we can make the Gulf Coast like the south of France where people from all over the world would want to come here. He said, that's better. So you're getting closer. He said, I have 95 attractions in 11 countries. He said, why can't you think bigger? And so that kind of spurred our, our mantra and our mindset amongst all of our – that's kind of our hospitality and tourism arm is this think bigger and that we're constantly thinking on how to grow the business, how to how to exceed people's expectations. And uh, – and so that is really kind of the hospitality and tourism division of what we do. It's going great. Um, down here on the Gulf Coast, we have beautiful weather year-round, and uh, it is the type of thing that we can still accomplish. Um, like I said, we had a setback with our duck boats um, due to the accident in Branson, so that's kind of you know set it back a little bit, and that's okay. Uh, we're working on our other divisions right now. I'm, uh, we've got a company called EDG. It's the Experiential Design Group, and what we do there is – uh, we really focus on product-based businesses. So uh, we're rolling out everything from all-natural dog treats to all-natural uh, dog products, affiliated products. Uh, we're about to roll out something called MySantaMessage.com. I'll send you some links on that. 
Um, we're hosting the summit down here for the Senior Bowl, where we've got speakers from around the world that are the best team builders in the world are going to come in and help teach. And then next year, we're going to do it on grit and perseverance. And Gary Vanderchuk's going to come to Mobile and speak on that one. And Cockrell's going to come in, hopefully, speak on that one. And so um, really seeing a, a kind of a move to product-based businesses. We're about to launch a company called Practical You, uh, which is a lot like what y'all are doing here with this podcast. And we'll get to the details on that. But it's basically a masterclass version of uh, classes, online classes that are really practical for life. You know, a lot like these conversations. So, yeah, that's what we're doing there, and uh, we're having a lot of fun on all those things. But thinking bigger is never the wrong answer, right? Expanding your horizons, your mind. And, you know, Elon Musk says he's going to go live on Mars, which is amazing. All right. If he, he, who am I to tell him he's not going to pull that off, you know? Yeah, for sure. So my partner, Andre, uh, perked up there when you said Gary Vaynerchuk. That's a big uh, inspiration of his. So if you could just let him know that he's uh, a very wanted person on this podcast in the future. But, um, all jokes aside, my last question here. Um, Twitter Gary V just did a video uh, for us. He'll be uh, talking about our summit that we're doing January this year, but then January 2020 he'll be coming to Mobile. So hey, you guys need to come down and join us. You know, we'll make an introduction for you. You can meet Gary V while you're down here. Absolutely, that is definitely something we'll consider as we hope to uh, grow on the podcast. So, one last question for me here: um, What advice do you have for people like us, uh, teenagers, college students? who want to start a company, who have a good idea, but they just don't know where to begin. Man, the way to start is just by getting on your feet and moving. Uh, and it's going to take longer in the beginning because you don't have any money necessarily. But the way I started my very first business was I literally just started hustling up money out of the ways I was spending it and trying to pile it together and come up with 50 bucks here, $20 there, $10 here, selling aluminum cans back to recycling places and you know, eating for $5 instead of 10 and not drinking Cokes and drinking water and buying cheap beer instead of going to the bar. You know, you can go blow 50 bucks at a bar in a hurry in college or, you know, you can sit at home and drink your own beer and save a bunch of money and start putting that towards your business. Um, but, you know, y'all are fans of Gary Vee. I mean, he, he gives you great advice. Just like go out and start doing it and start side hustling. Do it around class, do it before class and after class and stay up late. And, you know, I wish I'd, I'd look back in college of all the time I wasted playing video games. And there's no telling how many businesses I could have built from time I just wasted. Um, you, you're never going to have more free time than you do right now. And I know you think you're busy as a teenager or in college, but it only gets busier as you go. Uh, so it's all about having the perspective. And it's like find somebody and start something. And I would say find a business partner. There's this myth of the solo entrepreneur that that's the way to build the biggest company. But if you can find somebody that you really get along with and y'all can start something together, like you have this podcast, I think that can make a tremendous difference because um, you've got that buddy there that you can rely on that you can call or text at you know midnight or 2 a.m. or even if you're just watching a game together and you're talking about your business while you're watching the game. There's this misconception of work-life balance that I don't think exists. Um, and a lot of people are out here talking about it now, which is great. And I can't even remember where I first read it, but it makes so much sense to my life. But work and life are the same, and we have to work them together. And I have three small children. They're eight, five, and two. So I have to find a way to make all these things happen. So this weekend, you know, I, I could have been building my businesses, but it was more important for me to go to a swim meet for four hours on Saturday morning and four hours on Sunday morning and drive back and forth. Um, and come to work in between those things because 
that has to all mesh together. You can't just say, I'm going to take the whole weekend off, but you also can't neglect your family. Um, so it's really, you know, you guys, when you're a teenager, when you're in college, you got this free time, try and take advantage of it. And also let people live their life. If they're not hustling like you do, that's okay. Maybe they'll hustle later. Y'all are look, just having this podcast in college. You're far more advanced than I was uh, when I was in college. So I, you know, kudos to you. You've already, already gotten started. But, man, the best way to get started is to quit talking and start doing. Definitely. I appreciate that as well. And a lot of the things we like to talk about on this podcast, just in uh, some of our first episodes, we talk about just the opportunity that we have, like you mentioned. Like, yeah, we're busy with college and stuff, but, I mean, there's always a way to make extra time. And especially now, uh, just for our listeners out there, in college and whatnot like now's the time to take that risk because you don't have your family needs you're not tied up with things like uh like you just mentioned here so i think now is definitely one of the best opportunities in your life to take a risk or you know at least take a risk and then fail and learn from it uh it's just definitely the one of the optimal times to do so so uh especially on this podcast we like to talk about self-education uh, whether it be through, you know, Gary V videos or self-help or business books out there. Uh, so we're just wondering if you have any, if you are a reader at all, and if you have any books that you recommend to our audience. Yeah, I love reading. Uh, I try and read as much as I can. And, you know, people have this kind of misconception that, you know, reading the Internet is not reading. It's still reading. You just got to study and constantly study as much as possible. Um, books, podcasts, you know, YouTube videos, Practical You. That's the whole reason we're starting Practical You. So, People can learn these things. Um, you know, it depends on what you're really trying to learn. But some of the some of the top of things in mind right now are anything if you're in the business side, anything free economics related is great. They got a great podcast. Lee Cockrell, who I've told you about a couple of times, vice president of Disney for 25 years, he's great. He's got a great book called uh, Creating Magic: Help You Build Your Company. Uh, anything by Daniel Pink and decision making. Um, like I told you, Annie Duke's got that book, Thinking in Bets, all about how to make the best decision you can with the information you have. Uh, then I would also say find people on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, all the free all the free stuff. Um, there's no excuse. We have the Internet out here, and there's if you need an answer for something, you can go find it. But I would say consume products that fit the vision of what you want to create and then try and learn from those people. Just keep soaking it up, but also know that. You're not going to get all of it at once, and you're not going to know everything at once, and you can't get frustrated. You guys have to have this long-term perspective on what you're trying to build. Definitely. So we'll put all of your uh, social media handles in the uh, podcast notes so that people are, could you know, easily find your accounts. Uh, and then just the last question that we like to ask is what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self if you could go back and have a conversation with him? And two things. One, you are not as smart as you think you are. You do not have all the answers. Uh, two, you have all the free time in the world right now. You, you know, instead of playing NCAA football all night, uh, start trying to figure out, you know, how to make better decisions. You know, at the time, I, I had no idea what I wanted to be, um, but also to have fun and be patient. Like I, you know, the fact that y'all are even thinking about it at 18 means you're far more advanced than than I was. I was probably about 25 before I got my life together. So, uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, use your time the best you can. That's great advice, Scott. I uh, appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time on such short notice for <clears throat> offering such advice to our audience. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely be in touch. Definitely, me and Christian here will definitely try to get down to that conference. Uh, 
and yeah, I mean, it was a great interview, and I think you you got a lot of great advice out there. So, thanks, buddy. Well, I appreciate y'all's time, and uh, best wishes. Appreciate it, Scott. We'll be in touch.